And so we pray that you would encourage us in our pilgrimage. We pray, O Lord, that we would seek to pursue sanctification out of rest in the gospel. And may you free us up to be able to truly love our neighbor, to love people who are difficult to love, knowing that we have all that we need through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we present all these requests to you and more, knowing that we are heard because of the faithful intercession of your Son and our Lord, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Well, last time we were together in the book of Titus, we reflected upon uh, the grace of God, what grace is and what grace does. And today, uh, Paul will continue to return to this very important topic of the good news of the grace of God that is for us sinners. And so Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, growing up in a, a small town, our small town was known for its high school football program. And the football coach that, that I had in high school had been coaching for almost 40 years and had been running the same offense with the same key plays for decades. And so if you played football in my small town, you had to very early on learn the fundamentals of this coach's football program. In a similar way, the Christian faith has fundamentals. 
key truths and doctrines apart from which you cannot understand the whole. And one of those fundamentals is the, fundament, uh, the, the distinction between the law and the gospel, or as our catechism puts it, guilt, grace, and gratitude. This is a topic that we have ta uh, talked about quite a bit over the past year, and it's an important topic. The law is what kills us. It's what judges us. It's, it's what convinces us of our guilt and depravity before a holy God, and the law also is what instructs pilgrims on their way. While the gospel reveals the good news of God's free grace, which is for sinners. Now, Martin Luther thought that this distinction or this paradigm was so important that he once said that the Christian who can distinguish between the law and the gospel should be awarded a doctorate of theology. That's how fundamental this distinction is to the Christian faith. Now, in these verses, Paul is insisting, Paul is reminding Titus to devote himself to this distinction, to this fundamental, to guilt, grace, and gratitude. We see this emphasized in verse 8 as Paul says to Titus, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. And then he continues towards the end of this verse and says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. That these things that Paul is referring to is everything that he has said in verses 1 through 7. It's the law and the gospel. It's the reminder of our guilt, of our sin, of the, of the good news of, of the gospel and how we are to live in this age. And therefore, Paul is telling Titus that this distinction between the law and the gospel is a trustworthy and faithful saying or doctrine. Paul is saying that Titus, above all, is to insist or to speak confidently of both the law and the gospel. Titus, as a minister, has been given authority by God to announce both the law and the gospel to the church in Crete. Paul says, furthermore, that this distinction is both helpful and profitable for Christians in their pilgrimage. And so Paul is saying that this doctrine, this topic, is a fundamental part of the Christian faith. And it's this fundamental that we turn our attention to as we consider these eight verses. Now you'll notice in verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is telling the church in Crete to be reminded or to remember their duty of grateful service that they owe to their God. This is why Paul begins this section by telling Titus to remind them. Now, the tense of this verb remind, or this imperative remind, indicates that this reminder was to be done repeatedly. This was not a one-time reminder that Titus was to give the church in Crete. This was an ongoing or continuous reminder that Titus was to issue the, the members of the church in Crete. Now, when someone needs a reminder, that implies that that person is either prone to forget or prone to rebel, or both. Now, boys and girls, you probably have received reminders from your parents, and you probably received those reminders because you're prone to forget, prone to rebel, or both. And so we need to ask ourselves, why is Paul telling Titus to remind, or what, what things is, is Paul telling Titus to remind this church of? What duties are the church members in Crete to focus upon? 
Well, Paul says that Titus is to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. Paul here is referencing the fifth commandment, that commandment that we read earlier in the reading of the law that calls upon children to obey their parents, but more broadly calls upon all people to obey all authority figures. Now, lest we think that the civil magistrates or officials that Paul is referencing here were upstanding Christian officials, the ancient historian Polybius once said that it was impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. These are the individuals, these, these individuals who, who came up with these unjust public policies that Paul is calling the church members in Crete to submit to, to obey, to honor. John Calvin, in his comments on these verses, says that the Cretans likely thought that because these officials did not share their same faith, did, uh, did not submit to Christ or, or, or the law of Christ, that this meant that the Cretans were exempt from submitting to these magistrates. Consequently, then, Paul feels like he needs to remind them of their duties related to the fifth commandment, that they are called to obey and to submit to the magistrates who are presently over them. And we find ourselves today in, in much the same place. Many of our civil officials whom we are called to obey and submit to do not share the same faith that we have, are actually radically opposed to, to our personal belief system. However, as our catechism reminds us, as it reflects upon that fifth commandment, we are called to bear patiently with the failings of our leaders since it is God's will to govern us by or through their hand. Well, you'll see that Paul continues in verse 2 and he calls upon these Cretan believers to love their neighbors. He says, to speak evil, they are to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul here is calling these Cretan believers to specifically love non-Christians, hence the meaning of all people. Paul's focus here is on these Cretan believers' conduct uh, with those outside of the household of God or of faith. And when Paul says that these Cretan believers are to speak evil of no one, he, he is not saying, as one commentator helpfully says, that Christians are to be naive as they live in the midst of a pagan society or that they can never speak about the evil that they see in other people's lives. Rather, what Paul is saying is that Christians are called to resist the natural inclination to say or to speak the worst about others. Christians are called to resist the natural inclination to speak or say the worst about others. This is what Paul means when he says that we are to speak evil of no one. Well, Paul continues and he says that we are to be a people who avoid quarreling and who are marked by gentleness. And when Paul says that we are to be gentle, what he means is that we are not to insist on every right of letter or of law or custom. We are not to seek to enforce strict justice in the midst of our personal relationships, tit for tat, 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But rather, we're to be a people who are marked by overlooking minor offenses. Proverbs 19.11 says that it is the glory of a man to overlook sins or overlook offenses. One of the main ways in which we avoid unnecessary quarrels is by cultivating this virtue of being able to overlook minor sins and offenses. In fact, those who who don't cultivate this virtue, those who are prone to quarrel, those who are prone to to not be gentle or courteous, they tend to put themselves on an island, an island that is detached from any real um, substantial relationship as they live lives hated, hating one another and hated by others, as Paul will go on to say. Well, every principle in God's law has its exceptions. There are times in life when we are not called to obey authority figures and we are called to obey God rather than men. There are times when we are called to confront others in their sin and to speak with conviction, truth, and love, and that confrontation may lead to conflict and and, and tension within a personal relationship. And so it takes wisdom to know how best we are to to, uh, apply and live according to these imperatives that Paul is giving us in verses 1 and 2. In fact, this is what wisdom is. Wisdom is being able to perceive and recognize how best to approach and act in any given situation we encounter in life. One of the reasons why the Bible associates wisdom with old age is because those who are older in years have the most experience living in this fallen world with fallen people and have learned to cultivate wisdom through much trial and error. Wisdom then is not first of all book knowledge or head knowledge, but rather it's practical experience regarding how one is to to react and live in any given situation that we are presented. And this wisdom is really uh, cultivated through living life, through being in the lives of older people, people who have cultivated wisdom and virtue, which is why in Titus chapter 2, Paul envisions the covenant community to be a community in which younger generations are are discipled, mentored, uh, instructed by older generations. And last of all, Paul also says that these Christian believers are to be ready, ready for every good work. Now, this is helpful language that Paul gives us. Just as when you go on vacation or go on a trip, you don't just wake up and leave. There's a certain amount of planning and preparation that goes, uh, that goes into any sort of trip or vacation that you take. Well, in a similar way, Paul is saying that we are to be a people prepared for good works, alert for good works. The good works that are present in our days, right before us, as we interact with people. It's a lot easier to support causes out there than to actually live a life of ordinary good works with the people who are in our lives each and every day. And so Paul is saying that we are to be a people prepared, ready, alert for the good works that God has placed in our path each and every day. Now, you will recall in Titus chapter 2, Paul gave us a very helpful principle. He said that our personal conduct either reviles or adorns the good news of the grace of God. And that principle applies to these duties, these imperatives that Paul is listing for us in verses 1 and 2. Our obedience and submission to authority figures, our ability to be gentle, to avoid quarreling, to be courteous towards others, 
will either adorn or revile the good news of the grace of God. Consequently, then, we would do well to consider whether our conduct in these areas are either reviling or adorning the good news of the grace of God. When people look at your life, at your conduct, do they think, wow, I would never want to even consider Christianity based on the hypocrisy I see in that person's life? Or do people look at your lives and say, huh, I really would be curious to know what they believe because I've never really seen that kind of love before. And so we are to be a people whose personal conduct adorns, magnifies the good news of the gospel of the grace of God. Well, what are, what are our motivations for seeking to obey these imperatives that Paul gives us in verses 1 and 2? We will notice that verse 3 begins with this, this preposition 4, which indicates that what proceeds is establishing the ground for what Paul says in verses 1 and 2. Or to put it another way, verses 3 through 7, Paul is giving us two motivations that are to be the fuel for our, uh, for our obedience to what he says in verses 1 and 2. So you'll notice in verse 3, Paul seeks to remind the members in the church of Crete, of who they once were. He's reminding them of the guilt and depravity of their own selves. And so we read in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedience, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And notice how Paul says, we are we ourselves. He, he's including himself in this reminder. He's reminding us all the guilt and depravity of our past and of our own selves. Now notice the correlation between the commands offered in verses 1 and 2 and the description of our sin in verse 3. The commands of verses 1 and 2 are essentially rooted in the law of God. When, call, when Paul calls us to obey and submit to, to authorities, that's rooted in the fifth commandment. When Paul calls us to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people, to avoid quarreling, he's essentially referencing the second table of the law of God, which is summarized as love for neighbor. Paul then is wanting the church in Crete and all of us to peer into the mirror of the fifth commandment. And as we peer into the mirror of the fifth commandment, we should see in its reflection a past filled with disobedience, with rebellion towards the authority figures that God has set up in our lives and ultimately towards God himself. Paul envisions that we should look into the mirror of the second table of law of God and in its reflection, we should see a past that's filled with malice and envy, that's filled with hatred towards others. Now remember the context of the book of Titus. Paul is writing to a church in Crete, a very pagan, pagan society. Paul referenced the, 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 uh, a quotation from an ancient prophet that said, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And so most of the members in this church were recent converts from paganism. So most of these members did have a pretty bad past, a past filled with debauchery and sin, rebellion and hatred. Now, for those of us who, who don't have radical conversion stories, for those of us who, who, who were raised in Christian homes and may have never known a day apart from Christ, what Paul, says, what Paul says here is still true of us. We all, no matter what our past or upbringing consisted of, we all were once in Adam, 
We all were once totally depraved and inclined towards all evil and are still inclined towards evil and sin. Now, what Paul is saying here is he's reminding us of the guilt and depravity of our own selves is especially relevant during times of conflict. Those times when we are struggling to love difficult people. Those times in which we are struggling to, to be gentle, to avoid quarreling, to show perfect courtesy towards people who, who come across very prickly and unlovable. It's easy during those times to forget that at bottom we are no better than that person we are struggling to love. It's easy for us to forget that we would be acting no differently than the person we are struggling to love but for the grace of God. It's easy for us to forget that we have the same sinful nature that we are seeing evidenced in the person right in front of us. And so Paul is reminding these Christians of the guilt and depravity of their own sin in order to lead them to humility and empathy in their relationships with other people. Consequently then, as Paul continues in verse 4, he puts forward this this, this, this famous but. And Paul is saying that we are no better verse 3, but for the grace of God. And it's this grace that Paul uh, describes and explains for us in verses 4 through 7. And in verses 4 through 7, Paul has a wonderful exposition of the grace of God, which is for sinners. The same type of sinners who are marked by the sin described in verse 3. Now, when we talk about the gospel, this is a, a... a word, a topic that is used a lot, but precise definitions are oftentimes lacking. What is the gospel? Is the gospel something that we experience? Is it the joy, the peace, the hope, the purpose that we receive when we enter into a relationship with Jesus? Or is it something that Jesus himself objectively accomplished in history through his life, death, and resurrection? Is the gospel objective or subjective? Well, one theologian very helpfully defines the gospel as redemption accomplished and redemption applied. Redemption accomplished refers to Jesus' objective and historical work performed in history through his birth, through his life of righteousness, through his death, resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of his spirit upon the church. While redemption applied refers to how the Spirit takes this objective and historical work of Christ and applies it personally, subjectively in our lives through our justification and sanctification and so on. And here, Paul alludes to both redemption accomplished and redemption applied as the two prongs that that hold together the good news of the gospel. You'll see in verse 4 that Paul refers to how our triune God accomplished our redemption. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. In Titus chapter 2, Paul referred to the appearance of God's grace. What is Paul referring to in both of these instances? Well, he's referring to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When God himself condescended to us in flesh and in our humanity. And here, Paul is telling us that God's goodness, God's loving kindness are not abstract realities or attributes. 
but rather they're objectively, def objectively defined the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should never think of God's goodness or God's loving kindness apart from Christ. The only reason why we can be the recipients of God's goodness and loving kindness is because God's grace appeared in the humanity of Jesus. Well, Paul continues to describe how our redemption has been accomplished by saying that we have been saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, focus your attention on verse 6. Verse 6, Paul says that God the Father poured out upon us, the church, the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. What event in history is Paul referring to here? Pentecost. When Christ ascended into heaven and the Spirit came down to indwell the new covenant church. And so Paul is telling us that redemption was accomplished not only in Jesus' first coming, but also in the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Therefore, the gospel is first of all objective. It's first of all historical. It stands outside of our personal experience. And it's true no matter what our personal background or experience is or are. The gospel is true, and it's this gospel that people need to hear. The objective and historical work of Christ that is defined in his life, death, resurrection, and the pouring out of his spirit on the day of Pentecost. Well, in verse 5, Paul alludes to how our personal salvation uh, has been applied to us individually. So we see that this application of our salvation or redemption begins with the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit takes this, this objective and historical work of Christ, performed in history, and applies it to our lives. And this process, this personal salvation, begins with the renewal of the Holy Spirit or regeneration. When the Spirit comes into our lives and changes our nature, causes us to be born again, causes those who cannot see or enter the kingdom of God to freely enter and see that same kingdom. The Spirit is the one who takes our nature, which is inclined towards all evil, which is inclined to hate God and our neighbor, and changes that nature so that we now have the ability to love God and our, uh, and our neighbor through that same Holy Spirit. Well, this application of our redemption continues as Paul says in verse 7 that we are justified by grace. We are justified by grace. And this, this justification that Paul refers to refers to how God the Father promises to not count our sins against us, but rather to view us as if we perfectly performed all the good works which Jesus accomplished on our behalf. And so the Spirit takes Jesus' life of good works and his death and applies it to us in our justification. Paul continues in verse 7 and says that we also have received adoption, this gift of adoption which makes us, which makes us heirs of eternal life. We are no longer orphans. We are no longer alienated from God himself, but rather we're adopted and have every right and privilege as sons of God. And so what is the gospel? 
the gospel is both redemption accomplished and redemption applied. It's both objective and historical, but it also has to do with our personal uh, life and salvation. And so what do people need to hear? They need to hear both how uh, our salvation and redemption has been objectively and historically accomplished through the work of Christ, but also need to hear that this objective historical work of Christ is for them. It's for their justification and sanctification. Now, Paul also wonderfully explains how this redemption is a work of, the tri- of our triune God. Now, our catechism, as it introduces the Apostles' Creed, it says that, that creation is a, is a work of, of God the Father, redemption is a work of God the Son, and sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the catechism is highlighting how particular works of God highlight a particular member of the Trinity. However, we can't think that the other members of the Trinity are somehow absent in these specific works. Every work is a work of the triune God. God the Father acting in the Son by the Holy Spirit. And here in verses 3 through 7, Paul's reminding us that salvation, although it highlights the work of Christ, salvation is a work of our triune God. God the Father is acting through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit for us who are sinners. So again, I'd like to draw your attention to verses 5 and 6. As Paul says, He, which is a reference to God the Father, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He, God the Father, poured out on us richly, Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Notice how Paul highlights every member of the Trinity in these verses as he's defining and explaining the grace of God. God the Father is the one who saved us. God the Father is the one who who set his electing love upon us before the foundation of the world. However, God the Father accomplishes this electing love through Jesus Christ, which is why the end of verse 6, Paul says, concludes all of his previous statements by saying, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So God the Father saved us through the Son by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So again, God the Father saved us through the Son by the Spirit. Our salvation, our redemption is a work of our triune God. Now, this tells us something very, very important, that our, our Trinitarian faith, or put another way, the doctrine of the Trinity, stands as the necessary foundation or bedrock for the good news of the gospel that we all readily embrace. You may wonder sometimes, why do we take the time to recite a creed during corporate worship? The Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, uh, these creeds, creeds can sometimes feel overly theological, philosophical or even speculative to um, those who are not familiar with them. Well, why do we bother with these ancient creedal expressions? The reason why we recite these, these creeds is because the doctrine contained in these creeds stand as the necessary foundation to the good news of the gospel that we embrace. And if you get rid of this doctrine of the Trinity, you also have to get rid of the gospel that we treasure. This is why Paul highlights the work of our triune God as he explains the work of of redemption and salvation. 
And again, as I said before in, comment, in commenting on verse 3, the reason why Paul is reminding these Christian believers of the grace of God is to humble them. That they are not saved by their own works of righteousness, as Paul says in verse 5. They can't look at their lives, at their piety, at their zeal for good works, and think, I deserve the grace of God. They have done nothing to deserve the grace of God. God is the one who set his electing love upon us before the foundation of the world. And Paul wants these Christians to remember that they are no different and no better from, from the worst Christian that they may be interacting with but for the grace of God, a grace that they are not worthy of, a grace that they did not earn nor do they deserve. And this grace should cause us to be zealous in prayer. We do not change people. We do not save people. We do not mature people. We do not sanctify people. The grace of God changes us. The grace of God saves us. The grace of God sanctifies us. And thus, we should be a people zealous and praying that others would receive the same transformative grace. Well, Paul concludes in verse 8 uh, by again, as I referenced earlier, by saying, uh, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What are these things? Well, as I said before, it's everything that Paul has talked about in verses 1 through 7. It's our, our life of grateful service, verses 1 and 2. It's, it's the guilt and depravity of our own sin and remembering that guilt and depravity, as Paul says in verse 3. And it's the, the good news of the grace of the gospel, as Paul explains in verses 4 through 7. Or to put it another way, it's the law and the gospel. Now, I want to focus your attention on what Paul says uh, in the middle of this verse, as he says that he wants Titus to insist on the law and the gospel for a specific purpose, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul is saying that the reason why we need the law and the gospel, the reason why we need to hear guilt, grace, and gratitude is that so that we might be a people who, who are careful to devote ourselves to good works. Paul is saying that that our belief in God, our faith in the gospel is the engine, the motivation, the fuel for living a life devoted to good works. He wants people, those who have believed in God, to know that the implication of believing in God is to devote themselves to a life of good works. Faith in the gospel is our fuel. It's only when we truly are resting in the gospel that we will be freed up to not care about our ego or our self-proclaimed identity or our personal agenda. And, and we'll be freed up to actually love difficult people, people who bite the hands of those who try to help them. It's only when we are resting in the gospel that we will be freed up to no longer be introspective, but actually to to be extrospective, to look outside of ourselves to the good of our neighbor, the glory of God, and the righteousness of Christ, which is our only sure foundation. And so let us pray that we, we who have believed in God, would be careful to devote ourselves to good works. Amen.